0: Most of us have heard the analogy in the entertainment business that someone's film is their baby. When scenes from a film end up on the cutting room floor, that process is likened to removing a piece of their child, which, depending on the edit,
1: could feel like this, or like this. They're all your children, and sometimes the ones that don't turn out well are one's favorites, you know, the way you coddle (laughs) your least gifted children. Just think of it as your baby. Think of it as a child, you know, you're not gonna strip your baby of clothes and go, okay, walk across the freeway all on your own on a winter's day.
2: The flame of life, I mean, we're trying to be in a way like God in that we want to create something that lives, and um, to do that you, you can't be too tight and controlling because that will stifle life yet you can't be too widely permitting as that will put it out of control so you have to do both just like in raising a child or you fight for a scene because somebody else wants to kill your baby and now
0: you're fighting for it you know you line up the babies and you pull out the shotgun and, and you have this debate, you go, that one's so cute, I like him, look at his cute little hands, <clears throat> first yeah.
1: one dead. But you? he's only got one leg. <clears throat> I mean, in the end, I spent 20 years of my life making it, so of course it feels like my baby, because I worked very hard on it, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a long, long, long time. It's a big part of my life.
0: This is Byron Yi, a filmmaker who is currently navigating the world of sales. He currently has a film in post-production,
1: current working title, The Alien. And a lot of people um, are so embedded with their ideas or they're so into control that they're unwilling to give their babies up. If you have a, um, you know, someone that's raising a kid out in the woods and teaching them, uh, and then, but not letting them out into the world, and all of a sudden at age 18 they have to go out in the world, they may not be prepared to, um, to deal with, with the outside world, and, and they, their prospects for succeeding are, are, are very slim. Uh, All I can say is that everyone thinks their baby is the most beautiful baby in the world, Uh, but if no one ever sees it, then how how are they ever going to know?
0: Now let's consider the idea that the process of an independent film successfully being produced that gets distributed and viewed by many is like a partnership in nature that produces tiny little offspring, all with an undetermined life that lay ahead. Given that relationship, the one between the production company and the distribution or sales company, Cinematic Immunity asks... How do we make better movie babies?
1: From Los Angeles, California, this is Cinematic Immunity with your host, Louis Normandin. I'm a filmmaker, writer, director, all the hyphen and type of stuff. I'm, um, you know, been created for The better part of my adult life was a comedian, um, writer, actor. And then uh, four years ago, I had a little bit of money and I helped my friends out on a film called Bellflower, which went to Sundance and then got picked up domestically by Oscilloscope Labs and then was sold uh, foreign-wise by Visit Films. And so I used that as my graduate school of education of what happens after you make a film. And that was very important because before that, I had no idea. I had no idea how the market worked, how what distributors look for you know, all the different channels. I mean, people talked about it, it was all very, very mythical.
0: In our own recognition of this myth and in part to help dispel it, late last year, our cinematic immunity team went to the American film market in Santa Monica, California. This is a place where once a year, people that want to buy films like distribution companies and sales agencies get together with people that have or will have films to sell. Like a mushroom and a tree, it's a symbiotic relationship. Or, there's that. That was Alex Savalev. He is the director of domestic distribution for Vision Films. He and our other guests are the voice of the
2: other half of the parental unit. Distribution and sales. So I'm aware of both sides of the business. I'd like to think that uh, you know my approach is always twofold when I talk to a filmmaker. Okay, this is what the buyers want, but I also see how much blood, sweat and tears go into making every film.
3: I like to say uh, AFM or any film market really is like a flea market, but instead of selling fish or rugs, you're selling films.
0: That was Daisy Hamilton.
3: Hello, my name is Daisy Hamilton and I do acquisitions and business development for Tricoast Worldwide and we are an independent film sales and distribution company AFM is uh, probably one of the last film markets of the year, and we are selling films to all of our partners around the world. Uh, I'm looking at some films to acquire and meeting with a bunch of producers, hearing pitches, talking about their films in various stages of post and completion.
0: Directors, producers, and writers all get together with distribution and sales companies to make these little movie babies grow up and succeed in the world around them. In this case, success can be measured differently. As one example, artistically or commercially, of which we will get into in a bit, but here and now we will loosely define a happy little movie baby in the world of independent film as a movie that is seen by a monetizable amount of or artistically satisfiable amount of people and that can take in enough income to satisfy the distribution and or sales agency. And the other entity in this relationship, the production company, in which we will include its underwriter or financier or financiers, of which, in many cases, for different reasons, can be one and the same. Now, I won't get gender specific about who is who in this parental unit, but let's consider that all it takes to make happy little movie babies are simple needs that are understood from both parents, the filmmaker and the film distributor. As an example, let's say that one of the needs is that each partner needs to know what the other one wants. Generally, it's the filmmaker or production team that has not had the experience to know what the needs are of the distribution or sales entity it's pitching to. Enter Morris Ruskin.
4: My name is Morris Ruskin. I run a company called Shoreline Entertainment. We're a production company, a management company, and a worldwide sales company. So if I were to make a better baby, (laughs) this is how I would approach it. I would say start by um, looking at what the market wants, because at the end of the day, if Nobody sees your movie. What's the point? Absolutely, yes. It's so important for a distributor to understand what the market wants. I pull my hair out when I see movies that somebody spent $4 million on or some absurd amount and cast it in such a way that it's not saleable, made a a subject matter or... or didn't follow you know, certain rules and you're just like, you spent four million dollars on this, what were you thinking? Or if they came to me beforehand, I could have gone through, it could have helped them cast, it could have put the movie together in a way to make it work in the marketplace. So what are those rules?
0: What are the people looking for that are going to buy or
1: distribute the film? First, we should just get this out of the way. If you don't get the screenplay or story right, uh, then all you're gonna do is make a really good mediocre film. We would be remiss if we
0: did not start with story, but since our focus is not about story today, we will just say that you must, must, must start with a good story. Okay, moving on.
2: You know, there's a numerous uh, numerous factors that we take into account. You know, the the main thing is genre. Uh, you know, genre is the most important thing right now for the filmmakers to take into account, and I always try to communicate because a lot of buyers are like, okay, we want a you know dog and pony and uh, children movie, you know, or something like that. You know. Um, that doesn't mean the film has to be bad, you know. Uh, we just—I I always try to communicate to the filmmakers that you just have to tailor it in such a way that we can make the key art in such a way that the buyers would be appealed. You know, it would hold appeal to the buyers. But genre is not the only aspect. I mean, a high concept film will certainly sell a lot better than you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, domestic drama. You know, um, which actually happens to be one of my favorite <laughs> type of genre, but it just doesn't sell.
3: I think w- when you talk about genre, it's. Imp- really important to look at what genres are oversaturated and what genres are, are underserved. So for instance, this is like the saddest fact I know, the children's market is the most underserved market in North America. We are totally oversaturated in horror. In and slasher films, yeah. yeah. And, and we're not making enough content for our children. That is just horrifying, it's
4: horrifying. Action, as an example, is a universal language, so a good action movie that follows the Hollywood formula is gonna work in every country. It's, you know, you can watch that movie without understanding the language and enjoy it. So, if a movie successfully executes the Hollywood formula of the action
0: genre, a great villain, a greater hero, lots of explosions, a love interest, and overwhelmingly bigger and bigger stakes, it is more likely to be successful thanks to storytelling devices that are ingrained in our DNA. But genre is just a starting point. Here's Daisy Hamilton again.
3: I talk about cast because it's Probably the only risk mitigating factor or the largest risk mitigating factor in film. A, so, a
0: quantifiable assessment in the matrix of right. film distribution? Well,
3: when you have a project and it's not made yet, you have no idea if it's going to be amazing or if it's just going to be okay or if it's going to be horrible. Even if it's horrible, the sad truth is with a good cast, you can still sell it. So, it is a, a risk mitigating factor in that sense that um, no matter how bad the film is, a good cast sells. And uh, as a a a cine snob I hate that but it happens to be true.
2: And uh, in terms of budget, budget allocation, think about like how much of it is going to be spent on the actual script, and how much of it do you want to leave for marketing and and picking a star, you know, for your film. Even if um, we have a film with Nelly Furtado and she appears in the film for literally five minutes, but you can still put her name on the cover and it'll sell the film, you know. So uh, it probably costs half the budget of that film to just get her to be in the film for five minutes, but it's worth it, you know.
3: I actually think directors are, are a really important aspect of that because directors connotate taste they often set the tone they help you get good actors.
4: So you cast it in a way because the numbers or the estimates are all going to be about who's in it. So you ca- and the genre're yeah, hearing things, uh, yeah.
0: we're hearing overall budget genre and star power. Yeah so that's the formula, right So if you were trying to sell a film, know your genre number one. Use your director to help get your cast, or if you yourself are the director, make sure you get a good cast with the hope that it will help you sell the film. This is all sage advice for the directors and producers out there. And with that good advice comes some of the traditional pitfalls. Alex Savaliev and Morris Ruskin again.
2: Uh, Well, pride, pride gets in the way. It's like to quote Pulp Fiction, you know? You know that itch in the back of your neck? It's pride, you know? Screw pride to rephrase it a little bit.
4: I can tell you, A sort of funny example of a film that we were involved in producing where we gave script notes and we agreed to be involved in the film based on the notes and the script was changed to our notes and it was good and we approved it. And uh, the director went and shot his original script (laughs) anyway. And the ending of the movie is um, Gerard Depardieu shooting himself in the head with a with a small boy on his lap. Jeez. That's not what we approved.
2: You know, last year at AFM someone pitched me a film about a lion and then the lion dies at the end, you know? <laughs> And and we can pick it up because the lion died at the end. And I'm like, I'm sure it's a fantastic film. And I'm sure like you know I'm gonna cry like a baby when the lion has to die at the end. You know, but but why does he have to die at the end? Like you know, that, I can't sell that. That renders the <laughs> film unsellable. You know, oh, no. and 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 it sucks to say that to a filmmaker because once again, you know, I point out like it's uh, their it, baby. It's their baby, and why you know I can't just be like change your ending. You know, like they, that's the whole point of the film is that the lion dies at the end. You know, and the the little boy has to deal with death and grow up. You know, but. I would pick it up. i would I would love to, you know, but but the buyer who i'm who I'm showing this film to is going to take a look at it and be like, "No, this is too sad for for friends, you know?
3: It can be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, once a film is made to change it if it doesn't work for audiences. So that being said, uh, producers should really be in constant conversation with potential sales agents before they even go into production well before.
4: So a lot of times we pick up finished films where we don't have that control. And then if we are crafting a movie, we're putting it together, shaping it, then we will try to make it as commercial as possible, depending on what the genre is again and depending on the niche we're going for. But if it's a commercial genre, it, uh, there is a formula that we would follow and they, we would go after cast that is saleable. And we would check with distributors to make sure that that's somebody that they are interested in. With all of this
0: attention paid to making a Profitable film. Some of you are asking, what about artistic integrity? Which is a good question and something we strongly considered. How do you make a film that is successful not just monetarily, but one that holds up artistically yet still made with the needs of the distribution company in mind? How do you make a film that has a strong voice, but at the same time is not letting that voice be swayed by the prospect of commercial considerations? We go back to Alex Savaliev.
2: Yeah, keep your keep your eyes on the ball, keep your keep your, you know, like look at the bigger goal. That's what I strongly recommend. And like I said before, it's just is just about maintaining that balance because there's the overall overarching and like big genre of every film. So say, okay, I, I sit down and I'm, I'm a writer and I don't like family films, but I want to make some money so that I can write a film like Time Out of Mind or something like that. Um, I'll, write, I'll write a film called, you know, like a, a girl on her horse and the girl will find redemption through her horse, you know, after losing her mother or something like that, you know? We have a film like that, a vision called Gifts Horse and a girl's mom dies from cancer and she finds redemption through a horse, you know? But that said i would write that movie and i would make the dialogue between her and the mom really poignant you know i would like you know uh, develop the relationship between her and the horse i would add uh, a couple of scenes in there that really come from my heart you know and then and then you know it's just about maintaining that balance and and really putting pride aside and trying to trying to focus on your talent and and not thinking of it as exploitation thinking of it as paving your own path to something better where you can start making movies where you're not afraid to take a loss anymore because you've made enough money off of Pardon my French, crap, you know, that, that you can actually... I think everybody it has to sell out pressure. a little bit, I think, these days, you know, like it's it's a big, it's a big, uh, like like you said, the red cross, when people hear that, I don't wanna, I'm never gonna sell out, you know, well, tough, then you're, you know, then you're a great, you're probably a great artist that nobody, if a tree falls in a forest, you know.
3: I. I- I would hope that the ultimate goal is is to make something great for other people. Because if not, you're just making art and you're hanging it on your own wall. And, and that's all, it's the only place it should go.
1: You know, it's a hard truth is that the distribution side of it is making money. If you don't make money, you're not going to make more films, or you got to be able to talk more people out of of making, you know, more money to make your films. And this is the, the tough part. This is where art and commerce intersect, and this is um, the 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 tough reality of the business is that you can make a, a, a terrific film but if you can't get distribution, no one will see it, we all are delusional. But every once in a while,
2: someone will be delusional enough to make a film that has accessibility and reach. I'd like to think that, uh, you know, my approach is always twofold when I talk to a filmmaker. Okay, this is what the buyers want, but I also see how much blood, sweat, and tears go into making every film. Show the system that you can make a
1: film uh, a terrific story for for little money, little resources, and at that point, people will open up their checkbooks and give you more money to make that second or third film.
2: If you love writing, you love writing. Period. That's what I strongly believe in. You know, and if you want to make a name for yourself, then you can't be too proud in the beginning. You know, you have to be able to tailor make your script. Like I'm, you know, I'll write a lifetime movie. I'll write a, you know, I'll write a, uh, you know, small, uh, you know, big budget extravaganza. I'll write a horror film. You know, that that about a bunch of dummy. Uh, for a frat kids going to a cabin in the woods or something, you know. Who knows? I'll do that, yeah. and, but I'll still infuse it with a little bit of my voice, you know. I'll throw in a couple of pages where, like, I'm happy of the dialogue exchange, you know, <laughs> like things like that. And those things will actually help it because nobody wants crap, you know. So, be, like, even with those films, like, that's what I tell filmmakers, like. Like tailor make your film. It might not be the genre you want to write. It might not be the characters you like. But still, like you're writing it, so make it come, come from the heart. Make it yours. Keep those, keep those aspects in mind because if you sell that, and you, then you'll somebody will want a second or a third. By the time you get to your eighth or tenth script, you'll be writing whatever the hell you want marketing and distribution go hand-in-hand. Hand. And we, we let producers know from the get-go that uh, there's not gonna be a lot of hand-holding, but they, it is their baby, so they have to come in prepared. And how does
0: one get prepared when meeting to pitch their film? What kinds of things should they have prepared when they start taking sales meetings?
2: The first thing I ask for is the, you know, uh, can you summarize the film in, in a couple of lines, you know? Like two two lines, basically, How often, like do they, how the often can, line, can they do it in 10 or very 15 rarely. seconds? Yeah. very rarely, actually.
0: Rule number one, know your pitch. We can't stress this enough.
1: What does the character want? What is it willing to do to get what they want? What happens when they don't get what they want? And then what, how is it resolved? Rule number two, know your story and be
0: able to summarize it briefly,
2: very briefly you know and then and like then said, i want to i want to take a look at the trailer and and a uh, good thing to keep in mind these days for filmmakers is to keep their trailer really succinct
3: i think that definitely a pitch that goes longer than 2 or 3 minutes i'm, I'm my eyes are glazed over already i really like it when someone immediately on the first sentence paints a picture i know where i am i i see the i see and feel everything um, and, and some people, I think it's a natural thing, quite honestly. People can... They're storytellers, and, and they can really get you in... It's like a campfire, and some people can tell you that story and you're hanging off their every word. The
1: producers and the, or the uh, distributors and the uh, film, film companies, they're looking at your idea and everything has to be boiled down to what they call the one sheet, the key art. Because people at a glance need to be able to look at a movie and decide whether or not they want to view that movie. And I'll give you the example right now. You get on Netflix, Netflix, all they have are little key art posters of whatever the movie's about. And that's how people decide on the impulse, do I am I going to watch this or not? You know, is there a gun on the on the poster? Is it a face? People make a quick read in terms of what a movie is about by what is the one sheet, and that's a pitch is the same as the one sheet. You're pitching the one sheet when you're trying to get someone to give you money. And rule number three.
0: Have your key art
1: ready to go.
2: And Let me tell you, there are two different kind of filmmakers. There are savvy filmmakers who know exactly what kind of product they have and who know exactly what they want to do with it, and then there are filmmakers who present me a um, you know a film with no stars with uh, like a $50,000 budget, and they expect a theatrical release, and they want to make their money back, you know? Um, little do they understand that theatrical releases are very, very expensive these days, studios own, theaters so unless you're watching a Marvel film or a Terminator film or something like that that's very high concept or the Martian you know yeah um, your average movie going crowd is not gonna want to go see you know a film that has no stars why would it why would it want to go And and the overheads just do not justify the revenues for those filmmakers
0: the market is changing not just in terms of what people want but how revenue is generated as a whole and it's changing fast Now that internet distribution has exploded and the market share for independent films has grown, distribution companies and production companies are kept on their toes to figure out formulas for what will work to achieve the most profitability made by the films they are releasing. When we asked Morris about how the internet has changed the business of entertainment sales, he said,
4: Huge, I think we're going through a massive revolution that we're probably not gonna even feel or realize the impact until we look back on it 10 years from now. VOD. VOD yeah i yeah. mean the death of dvd and the rise of and all these new platforms and virtual reality coming and
2: exciting, you know, interesting times. And there's this transition going on right now. It's like the second coming of cinema. uh, And cinema always goes through those stages. And right now, it's transitioning onto VOD. So the older generations are having a little bit of, a not to be ageist at all, but they're just having a little bit of difficulty finding that content. Uh, So that's what, to get back to your question about marketing, that's what a lot of our marketing uh, is focused on, is to reach out to those specific target demos and let them know and uh, raise their awareness the fact that that's the way of the future and a lot of films are being released simultaneously these days in theaters and on vod
4: i started a management business for the reason that i saw this coming and was a need for product and we're tied to so many filmmakers based on films that we acquire based on films that we produce and just being out there in the marketplace it's like somebody's going to make all this stuff that's going on not just hulu and netflix and vimeo There are a ton of other platforms out there that want and need product.
3: Before, you were working on a licensing model and now it's primarily a rev share model. That means if the film is good, everybody wins. If it's not, nobody wins. And that's the primary difference. The money comes and it can actually come in in larger quantities, but it, it... comes a bit later because you you have to wait to see the actual revenues from the VOD.
2: But the good thing about a VOD is, and and the the interesting thing is, it's it's much cheaper to pay things on you know three ninety nine dollars online than it is to pay twenty five dollars for an IMAX experience. And a lot of people just don't want to go and you know because uh, going to the movie and while it's paying for parking and buying popcorn and all that stuff. So you're if you go with a couple, you know, with your wife or husband, then you're a good fifty dollars, you know, and while you can just stay at home. And watch uh, the same film on VOD, and that's what a lot of companies are now utilizing because of the economic crisis, and because of the global situation, because how difficult it is for people, uh, for busy people to leave their homes, their families, their work, you know, their jobs right now to go and entertain themselves. They'll only do that for films like *The Martian*. So for smaller films and for smaller titles, they they go to VOD.
4: Well, it, you know, end of the day, it's supply and demand. Um, um, but we do have to take into account. The fact that some economies are not doing very well. So, we know that um, maybe Spain is going to be offering a lot less than they were several years ago, as an example. So, we arrive in a changing
0: world of economic ebbing and flowing. Concerned parties have to stay abreast of what's going
4: on out there in the world to best understand their markets. It's selling movies country by country. And we always look at it from a point of view what's the worst case scenario this movie? Is? What's it going to make? Worst case scenario. And you make the movie for that amount. So um, you have to look at the worst case scenario. But even then, even in a worst case
0: scenario, there are tried and true paths to improve your odds of getting a proper green light.
3: I, I like to look at directors like shamans. Uh, you, you know, you walk into a movie and you go into this state of liminality, and by the end, you should leave. Uh, and have some internal evolution take place. Uh, Your psyche should be evolved in some way, and it's because of the director. The director has taken you on that journey. It could be through escapism, humor, fear, whatever tactic is used, you leave and you uh, learn something. What types of things might
0: Really, just be no. I can't do that. Well, in terms uh, too much sexual exploitation, or you know, se- you know, any of that. Sex sells.
2: No sex sells is pretty good. Uh, in terms of VOD, it's a little bit tough um, with sex. You know, like anything too explicit. Uh, it's just because uh, when you put it on channels like DirecTV or Ubiquity, you know, or or in demand, you know, people go on demand uh, and, and look um, and look for films, and you know, they, they you can't really put something that's very explicit on there. So.
0: For all of you filmmakers and producers out there, if you are still in pre-production, consider these things when assessing the film and your expectations of it. Knowing what a distributor wants is essential to selling your film. Maybe your plan is to have a good festival run and reap the benefits that go along with it. Accolades, networking, perhaps generating some heat for said film and all parties concerned. This is fine, but you should identify that this is what you are doing from the beginning. But if your plan is to spend money on making the film and then to make your money back after you sell it at a film festival, Morris Ruskin
4: says this. It's not a good business model, uh, but a lot of young filmmakers believe that is the business model. I'm gonna make a great film and nobody worry because it's gonna get into Sundance and it's gonna be picked up there.
1: You know, I'll try to go the film festival route, but I also know how to try to bring it to market and uh, some of the things you have to do that you don't even think about when you're making a film. So all of this takes us back to the idea that for filmmakers, we say that the
0: relationship between the production company and the other half of the equation, the distribution company, should be strongly considered at the earliest stage possible so that your little movie babies can grow up strong and healthy. Come prepared by knowing your 15 second pitch, know your story and conflicts, and have your key art ready. Vet the sales companies that you are going to meet and know what their histories are. In the end, it's all about considering the whole process from start to finish, knowing what your expectations are, and then managing them accordingly. If you do plan to sell your film, pay your underwriter, and keep your sanity, we recommend that you consider what the needs are of what will eventually be your partner, the distribution company
3: but it's not for them. Of course, when you make something great, you do end up giving and feeding yourself and your own artistic spirit. I would not make a baby that is similar to millions of other babies that are already out there.
1: Someone that's raising a kid out in the woods and teaching them uh, and then but not letting them out into the world, and all of a sudden at age 18 they have to go out into the world, they may not be prepared to to deal with with the outside world, and their and they their prospects for succeeding are, are are very slim. On the other hand, if you know you raise your baby in a community, and they've got friends and, and surrogate parents and influences and things like that, you know, and you give them a good social structure, and it's a good story, and it's a good idea, and you let people participate in raising this child, then it, I think would be much more successful than if you you know only kept it to yourself and only did it the way you wanted to do, and were completely inflexible.
4: You can't take away the artistic nuances you can't take away the director's vision it's gotta it's gotta stand out it's gotta be something that's unique and interesting in the marketplace
1: yes i have to make babies i have to make film no ifs ands or buts i mean that's why you're in film you know that's why people try to make films is that it's ambitious and you've got to finish the goal Today's
0: episode was edited by Tyler Nisbet and produced by Zoe Lane. Earlier in the piece, you heard from Ivan Reitman, Francis Ford Coppola, and George Lucas from a Netflix documentary series called Hollywood's Best Film Directors. And from earlier Cinematic Immunity episodes, we heard from Thomas Ethan Harris, Donovan Thomas, and Tim Gagliardo. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you had a great time. We'll be back next week with an interview from a featured guest. Please check us out on Instagram, on Facebook or on Twitter and definitely take some time to check out some of our previous episodes at our website www.cinematiccommunitycast.com thanks for listening everybody we'll catch you next week whoa whoa whoa, whoa. am I not in this episode at all November was a busy month sir we knew we couldn't get you out there because you were too busy but uh, we definitely wanted to run with this one and make it count wait a minute who was snarky and funny during this episode I mean this is outrageous. I, I didn't know you did the show when I wasn't around. We'll see you next week, Brian. We got more interviews to come. More Next week? Wait a minute. Let's do more of this show with me in it. Uh, what's going on? Bye, everybody. Take care. This is outrageous.